So you can actually search and download SAR data that's ready to be used for a number of different ways. And they even have an ArcGIS toolbox that can help you run and do a bunch of different calculations. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Esri Australia. To get your hands on more short, sharp, and immediately useful resources, head to the Esri Australia website and search for Goldmine. Welcome to the GIS Directions Podcast. I'm Wayne Lee Archer. I'm Riley McGlusky. And today we are welcoming back friend of the show, Jeremy Kirkendall, the Senior GIS Administrator for NASA's Disaster Response Program. Thanks for joining us again, Jeremy, all the way from Washington, D.C. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be back. Now, Jeremy, we've received lots of feedback after our last episode just about how valuable it was to learn about all these amazing data resources coming from NASA and that many of us didn't really know about. And today we're keen to learn more about the specific data that's free and open for everyone to use. And that's NASA's SAR data. Otherwise known as synthetic aperture radar data, of course, Riley. I think I'm going to stick with SAR on that one, Wayne. (laughs) Fair call. It's one of those parts of the GIS world that seems a bit scary to the uninitiated. Sometimes we don't even really know what it is. I know it was uh, quite a long time into my GIS career before I really got the idea of what synthetic aperture radar is. Jeremy, we often use remote sensing data like SAR in our everyday workflows, but if people have never used it before, how do we get started? What is it? And what is it about SAR data that makes it so special and useful? SAR is uh, different from optical. So optical sensors like uh, on Landsat 8 are going to be passive. They're just really taking a photograph of what it sees. They have different band combinations, so you can make products like NDVI and things like that. Mm. But you've got the SAR sensors that are active sensors. They're sending out energy, and they measure how much of it comes back. So if you're familiar with a Doppler radar, it's kind of like that. It's another type of radar where the Doppler radar sends out its uh, radar waves. They bounce back off of rain or snow or hail, and they all have a different signature. And because we know what that signature looks like, we can tell what we're looking at with the radar. So it's the same idea with the radar satellites where they can tell what the roughness of the ground that it's looking at would be. Mm whether it's going to be water or urban or vegetation. So there's a lot of different ways that you can use SAR data like that. I think speaking of the Doppler radar, the good thing about SAR data is it can penetrate through cloud cover and weather systems, which is fantastic, you know, in in big events and when we want to see how, you know, landslides have changed or, or how topography has changed during these giant weather events. When Hurricane Dorian was sitting over top of the Bahamas for a couple of days, we had a Sentinel-1 satellite that passed directly over the islands, and the radar was able to pierce through the clouds and see where the flooding was happening in the middle of the storm. And we used that imagery to determine where the flooding was and help out with the uh, response in the middle of the event. So it can penetrate through like the air column down to the ground uh, sort of better than an optical means can. Does that mean it can also sense stuff in like the air column? Is this how we get your, your smoke plume uh, you know, data? Is, is this what was used for, for that kind of thing? The smoke plume data will come from other instruments. The 3D smoke plume data for the Australia fires was from the MISER instrument on board the Terra satellite. And that is actually a really simple thing. It's nine optical cameras and they're capturing the smoke at all these different angles. And because of all the angles, they can tell how high it is. 
Wow, that's super clever. I know I spent about six or so months during my honours year trying to calculate tree heights using Sentinel-2 data. It just was not happening. I had to push my whole thesis back because we just could not get it to work, unfortunately. Yeah, it definitely takes more uh, processing to use SAR. It's not as simple as just looking at the image that comes back. You have to use some different tools depending on what kind of analysis Mm. you're trying to do. But there's a lot of tools that are already available for users out there. We have a data center called the Alaska Satellite Facility, and they process all of the Sentinel-1 SAR data. So you can actually search for the Alaska Satellite Facility and download the SAR data that's ready to be used for a number of different ways directly from their site. And they even have an ArcGIS toolbox that can help you run and do a a bunch of different calculations. That's so cool. I didn't I didn't know that actually. So I'm going to check that out after this. So I know that um, you know a lot of different space agencies release satellites, ESA, DLR. And I know you guys work in conjunction with a lot of them. But what satellites do NASA? What satellites have NASA? Sorry, released that capture this SAR data. So right now we actually don't have any SAR uh, satellites. We're using the ESA satellites. We're using data from JAXA's satellites and some other ones, but uh, we're going to launch NISAR in 2022, which is a joint mission between NASA and the Indian Space Research Organization. And that's going to be our first SAR satellite. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, we'll be able to use it for a lot of different disaster purposes and other things too. I spotted just recently the the launch of uh, Sentinel-6. We've actually had a, a couple of users here when I mentioned that we were talking to our favorite astronaut man. Uh, they asked, do you know what the resolution of uh, Sentinel-6 is? What can we expect out of that particular satellite? And is that collecting SAR or is this an optical satellite? Sentinel-6 is focused on the oceans. It does have a SAR instrument on board that will measure things like the wave height, the height of the oceans. Typically, the resolution of SAR satellites is 10 to 30 meters horizontally, but when it comes to vertical measurements, it can detect changes as small as a few millimeters, depending on what kind of processing you're doing. That's amazing. I, I've lost for words at, at that kind of accuracy, especially in the, in the vertical sort of aspect. That's some really uh, powerful tools there for atmospheric analysis and, uh, and that kind of thing. We can measure surface deformation caused by earthquakes uh, using a process called interferometry. And what it does is it takes a pass from before the earthquake happened and then another SAR pass after it happened. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're able to measure those minute changes in the ground. It's still very exciting. And, you know, we're only going to get better and better at this sort of analysis. So that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, that kind of leads to my my next question. Uh, like here in Australia, it seems that we're, we're never short of natural disasters. And you obviously work in this field. What applications do we have for SAR, you know, disaster management? Can we use SAR to mitigate things like landslides, for instance? So it sounds like you can do ground displacement. It sounds like that would be perfect for landslide analysis. It is. You could actually use SAR measurements and using interferometry, you could determine changes in a landslide if it were to continuously keep creeping after it Mm -hmm. initially happened. There's some areas where a landslide will happen and it's in a remote area near a river. It just kind of sits there, but it creeps over time. And eventually there's concern that it could 
make one big fall and suddenly block a river. So it's helpful to track those kinds of changes over time. And what you can do is detect the small changes or the large ones. It just depends on how long of a period you're looking at the data over. This seems to be the real differentiator between uh, SAR and optical data. I've got this image of like the LIDAR sort of point cloudy thing happening in my mind. Have you seen any cases where we might um, use both like LIDAR and SAR together to get a really, really crisp, you know, look into that vertical space? The reason I ask is I've I've seen um, an interesting product, I think it's out of Aerometrics, that actually does uh, bushfire burn load, so the actual fuel load um, prediction, and and that's done using LIDAR. And so I'm just wondering, we've got lots of different aspects, different bands and different wavelengths that that SAR works on. Would you be able to like figure out something like a, a bushfire burn load or fuel load uh, from SAR data? And and where would we get such data? Because to do it with LIDAR, you've got to, you know, fly planes and, and other, you know, things around. That's quite expensive and hard to do. If we've got some SAR data there, maybe we can, can look into bushfire, you know, fuel load using SAR data. Well, we use SAR data to determine burn scars. You can do the change detection and it'll show you the difference in the surface roughness. So after an area has been burned, you can tell the ground doesn't look the same as it did before. And if you've got an L-band satellite, it'll penetrate through the heavy tree canopy. In California, some of their fires move so fast that the heavy tree canopy isn't burned away, but the ground below it is. So you have to keep that in mind when you're trying to do some of these types of analysis. And it sounds particularly useful because you could, tell me if I'm wrong, you can actually look through the smoke and look through the smoke while the fire is happening to see that kind of thing while the fire is active. Exactly. It'll pierce through the smoke. It'll see the change on the ground. And as long as you've got imagery from beforehand that you can compare it with, you can determine where the burned areas have happened. The same goes for flooding and all kinds of other disasters. Most of our products are where is the change? And we look at imagery that was captured recently. So we know it was probably caused by a disaster. That's a major topic of conversation within ecologists here in Australia, because our vegetation is very unique in the sense that we thrive off fire. So most of our, you know, low canopy vegetation thrives off having um, like ash beds and smoke plumes and all that kind of stuff to activate the seed, seed release sort of process. And I know that we do NDVIs quite frequently within a few of the other organizations that we work with. I guess NDVIs is the extent, or those who are sort of playing at home, I should probably clarify a bit more, uh, NDVIs, Normalized Difference in Vegetation Index. Is there any other analysis that you can use for land classification outside of NDVI? Because that's all I've really had exposure to. Yes. Looking at the different backscatter values that you get in a SAR raster, you can determine what you're looking at, whether it's going to be water or vegetation or urban areas. So if you had some uh, larger scale change, you could definitely pick it up uh, as long as it matches the resolution of the instrument. So what I'm hearing there is based upon, you know, how reflective, uh, you know, the ground is, we can tell the difference between trees and bitumen and built up areas and water. Right. So open water is going to reflect it in a certain pattern that it's looking for. Vegetation is going to scramble the energy around a lot more. And with buildings, there's multiple large surfaces there. So it might bounce it back a couple different ways. 
Now, surely this can't all be for free. Like, you guys can't be giving this stuff away for free, too. <laughs> well, uh, ESA Copernicus is offering their data through their hub, and our Alaska satellite facility also has the data available, and it's all free and open for everyone to use. So do you have any advice for Australian ArcGIS users who might not be familiar with this already, whose exposure is probably with just optical data? How would you get started with this? What are the, the first steps maybe to cracking open some of this data and getting some kind of insight? So the Alaska Satellite Facility has a lot of good tools and a handbook on how to use SAR data. NASA has a program called the Applied Remote Sensing Training Program, RSET, and they have some SAR training courses on there. And NASA SERVIR, S-E-R-V-I-R, has a SAR handbook for forest monitoring and biomass estimation. Oh, very cool. I think that's a, a great tip to end uh, the conversation on this time. We've got lots of resources by the sounds of it for people to get into accessing and using SAR data. So for those who want to catch those links, you'll be able to see those up on gisdirectionspodcast.com.au and you'll be able to see how you can get started with SAR data and use it maybe in disaster management and landscape detection. I'd also love to hear how you guys use SAR data. So jump on the website and send through your applications or connect with us through Twitter and we'll look to feature them on the website or pass them on to Jeremy and the folks at NASA. Jeremy, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. I really hope we'll uh, have the chance to get you back on the show. We've got so much to talk about and it seems that NASA have got so much to offer. So thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to talk with you all again. Happy mapping, people. Bye, everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Esri Australia. 